So good morning. Uh, welcome to, to New Life. We are uh, going through this series uh, from this book, God in My Everything by Ken Shigematsu. And we have looked at this idea of a trellis, which is meant to support our spiritual life in Christ. So a trellis, of course, uh, lifts up the leaves and the, and the vines and the branches of a plant or a shrub so that the plant can get maximum sunlight and grow in a healthy way. If you don't implement a trellis in your garden, your plants will grow over something, maybe a rock or, or a tree or the side of your house. But intentionally placing a trellis in the garden is the way to make sure your plant grows in a healthy way. And we liken this idea to the idea of abiding in Christ. You know, the, the whole point of our life is to get ourselves into the light of Jesus. Um, and Jesus has given us different ways to do that, that we can... Uh, put into practice so that we can draw near to God. So we looked at our trellis from the book. Uh, We we looked at the idea of a Sabbath being a foundational root practice that draws us near to Jesus, taking time off from our work so that we can um, rest in God because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So it's kind of uh, even pre-sin, it's a part of creation. Uh, we, we've talked about the idea of prayer being a part of our trellis, of, t- of talking to God and the different ways uh, that we can do that. We looked at the idea of, of scripture reading. And then the last couple of weeks, we've had conversations about the importance of community in our trellis and how important it is to have uh, circles of, of Christian friends that you can share and do life with. And we've heard from different people in the church about the different ways they've done that. Um, We've also talked about last week the importance of spiritual friendship, of having individual people in your life that you that you commune with in Christ, that you talk to about your faith that you that you grow in. And these are all ways that we relate to one another, and they really do make a huge difference in our lives. If you missed any of those sermons, they're all on the internet on the on the webpage. But uh, we're moving forward, and the final area of our um, relate part of the trellis is the area that has to do with our sexuality. In, in Christ. And I knew this is what you thought we were going to do on this Sunday. Because it's obviously the Sunday before Christmas, so obviously we're going to do it. So we're going to talk about this big part of us, our sexuality that makes up, you know, part of our trellis of life. You know, part, part, of, part of the ways that we can nurture ourselves so that we can grow in Christ and have Christ at the center. Sometimes I feel like, you know, sexuality is either way overemphasized by the church, like it's all they talk about and they're obsessed with it, or it's not spoken about at all. It seems like it's one or the other. In our broader, you know, non-Christian culture, you know, sexuality has become basically one of the most important parts of a person's identity. Like, they are defined by their sexuality. So while I, I really like the, the way our culture is going where they're talking about, instead of saying a disabled person, they say a person with disabilities. You know, that's decentering this the disability, which is not the most important part of a person. And, but, but sexuality has become more central so that you are defined by your sexuality in many ways. That's, I just find that to be incredibly limiting because we are much more than our sexuality. And when it becomes this master identity in our lives, it becomes this thing that is untouchable and completely central. You know, we close God off from this very important part of our lives, our sexual being, whether we are single or married, or what have you, everyone is a sexual being. And we, um, we often will close God and other people off when we make it all about our sexual identity. The most important thing that we can do as Christians 
is to allow God to have access to all of us, including the most private parts of our life. Because that's where the good stuff happens. God works in our lives. There's, a, there's just a heck of a lot more to all of us than the things that we use to define ourselves. You know, we are more uh, than our career. We are more than our geographical location in the world. We are more than our um, ethnicity or, or heritage, more than our talents and skills, more than our careers, and yes, more than our sexuality. We are, in, in the center of who we are, we are made in the image of God. That's our identity. I feel like so many times in our lives, we're chasing after so many other things to bolster up our identity, but in keeping God out of that central place. And the whole point of the trellis is to keep God at the center, to keep Jesus at the center, not to live a balanced life, but to live a, a life centered around Christ. So in my, you know, sexuality is only a part of that picture. Another point I think it's important to bring into this conversation uh, is, is, is that often people don't talk about sexuality in church because there's a tremendous amount of shame associated with sexuality. and People feel like they're going to be sitting and just feeling bad about themselves, not, not remembering that everybody is very broken in this area. We are very broken by our past experiences, by our upbringing, by our culture, and the things that we are told. And, you know, we're all in the same boat. We all, we all carry brokenness in us. Sex and sexuality is so powerful that when it becomes disordered, for instance, in you know, commitmentless casual sex or compulsive pornography use or any other kind of compulsive behavior, when it gets cheapened, it often leads to shame and sadness and emptiness after the fact. And I think everyone has experienced some level of that emptiness that comes from disordered sexuality. And the, the worst part is when the shame leads to a numbness in our heart that leads to us building relational walls between ourselves and other people, ourselves and God. Because, you know, something about sexual sin, it's, it's a different from other sins that we might commit because we're sinning against our own body. It's like we're hurting the hardware that we use to receive God's love and grace. And we, we think that God can't love us when we sin in these ways or God won't forgive us or God can't tolerate this sin. But that couldn't be more far from the truth. You know, God came to deal with sin and shame on the cross definitively. And the good news is that though we might feel this extreme shame around this topic, God is completely approachable with this. It's, this is not a small thing for him. I love the Old Testament refrain where, where it says, do you think the Lord's arm is too short to save? As like, kind of like a start, like, do you think that he can't reach into this area and make a difference? God, in this area of sexual brokenness, is completely approachable and just like any other thing in our life where we stumble and fall and, and slip up or even have long patterns of, of addiction and difficulty, you know, God just wants to deliver us, to forgive us, to heal us, and to bring us into a place of flourishing. That's his will for us. That's the truth. And the only reason that we don't believe that is because of the, the kind of shame that comes when we sin in this kind of way. Um, guilt is a great thing. Guilt can lead you to repentance and to having God come and cleanse you of your sin, but shame is something where you feel like you are so bad that God, that you're untouchable, even by God. It just pushes you underground to secrecy and to pain. But the good news is God, God is a forgiver and a redeemer. God is a God of hope and love. God takes broken things that we hand to him, and he makes them beautiful in his time. He redeems 
all of the years the locusts have destroyed, it says in the Old Testament, uh, God, God does that in this area, this sensitive area of sexuality. I've seen it. I've seen that in myself. I've seen that in my friends. I've seen God bring healing from extreme brokenness in this area of sexuality, which is amazing. You know, all, the, all we have to do is come to God through Christ, agree with God, be cleansed by him, and, be, and begin a process of, of where he restores and redeems our lives and even turns our darkness into light. You know, our sexuality and our brokenness in this area is not beyond the reach of God. In our book, Ken quotes from Ezekiel. I love this. He says, By the grace of God, we can all re-experience God's ideal of sexual purity through the forgiveness of Christ. In Ezekiel 36, 25-27, we read these words of hope. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So you may struggle with an ongoing sense of regret or shame over past or present sexual sin, but God promises to sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean. He offers you a new heart. You do not need to be defined by your past. When you turn to God, you experience a new beginning. That's just good news. So whenever you're struggling with this shame and difficulty and, and brokenness, remember, that's not a true feeling. God is close at hand. God is so good. That's the good news. It's no big thing for God. And God loves us so much. He just wants us to come to him. He wants to reorder our disordered lives and to bring, bring order out of chaos. And that certainly ties into our Advent theme of peace. And what if you could feel peace with God in this area of your life? In our book, Ken talks about the idea that love, signified by the Greek word eros, one of the words for love, has a broader meaning than just sexual intercourse, as we think of it. Instead, it can encompass the life-giving energy that we put into the world. You know, since, since sex, sex can lead to propagation of life, I know I have four kids. Um, <laughs> in a broader sense, the, the, the concept is it's a life-giving creativity, love within us. And Ken talks about the idea of channeling that creative energy um, to bring life into the world. He talks about how all of us are sexual beings, whether we are single or married, widowed, divorced, any other status we might have, have any given time in our life. Um, we're all sexual beings. We all need to think about what our trellis is going to look like so that we can thrive and grow in our relationship with God in this area. You know, some people have a gift of celibacy. You know, some people uh, don't desire sex. Some people choose to forego sex and marriage to have more time and energy to serve God and other people or for other reasons. But everyone is a sexual being. One thing is for, for certain, especially if you've been listening to the sermons over the last couple of weeks, we are all made for fellowship and deep community. And we, when we neglect to foster those deep relationships in our lives, in friends, in, in friend groups, uh, in spiritual friendships, we begin to ache inwardly. And sometimes our loneliness can cause our sexuality become, to become disordered. You know, Ken points out that sometimes Christians have more uh, severe sexual temptations, not because there's something wrong with them, but because they're just lonely. They're just lonely. It's, it's, it's connected, though not the same, right? Loneliness leads people into doing things they, they actually don't really want to do as Christians. 
it, it leads them to compulsive behaviors. And none of those things feel good after, after the fact. They just don't. So many people live in shame, but God is poised to shed light into this area of our lives because he loves us. And I thought Ken's ideas about allowing God to reorder our lives by forming deep friendships, community, and serving others was good advice. You know, when, when your relational life is ordered, your sexuality will be better ordered as well. You know, sometimes disorder in one area leads to disorder in the other because of the loneliness we feel. So I wouldn't go as far as to call, you know, that relational energy as being sexual, like, like Ken seems to, but I'd say that it's all connected. It's all connected on a spectrum, that we are made for community. When we don't have that community and friendship, we can become disordered in this very important part of our life. So a rule of life or part of our trellis in, the, in this relationship category is, is simply thinking carefully about our sexuality, ensuring that it does not become the center of who we are, but instead just a smaller part of who God has made us to be in Christ at the center. So, so thinking through our sexuality and investigating what God says about it in the scripture allows us to make Jesus the center of our lives and open all of us, even our very personal, deepest self, uh, to the only one that can bring order from the things that are chaotic, which is Jesus. Ken says this, this about the, the part of our trials concerning sexuality. He says, A healthy rule of life that guides and directs our sexuality will not repress our sexual energy, but help us to channel it so that we can be more deeply connected with others and bring life. A rule of life or boundaries around our sexuality is not a dam that blocks the flow of our sexual energy. It's more like the banks of a river helping to direct a powerful current. A rule of life provides helpful boundaries that guide and channel our sexuality towards things that are life-giving and honor God's created purposes. So there's some interesting stuff in this book, good stuff to read. I encourage you to read the book and to hear more of Ken's thoughts as you process this topic. Uh, because it's not the Bible, it's not full of perfect truth, but there's some great thoughts in there uh, as you process this for yourself. You know, fundamentally, sex is just a powerful thing. Um, the Bible says that sex makes two people into one. The two shall become one flesh. The scriptures say that sex binds a husband and a wife together, soul to soul. It's a very powerful connection. Um, we, maybe not everyone feels that way, because perhaps because of, of past things and, and maybe misunderstandings about sex, but it binds people soul to soul. That's what it does. For this reason, because of what a powerful force it is, our trellis in this area needs to help us to grow in, in healthy ways with Christ at the center. And um, making sure that none of these things define us fully as people. One important text I want to look at uh, in this area is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. I think this is a really interesting text. It says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means set apart. Set apart from the world. It is God's will that you should be set apart. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans. who do not know God. And in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I think that from this text, we can begin to find a healthy, Christ-centered way of thinking about this area of sexuality and learn what, learn what it means in order to please God in this area. I listen to, to quite a few different podcasts, and um, I hear a lot of things from some, some of my non-Christian friends. And I, one of the things that's common is they wonder why are Christians so obsessed with the body and what we do with our body or what we don't do with our body, and why are they always telling us about this stuff? You know, from the many cultural hot-button issues, you know, sexuality included, a big complaint from non-Christians is that the Christians hold these ideas about how to use the body and then share those ideas, making other people feel judged by those ideas. Well, non-Christians are correct that Christians believe and teach one another to think about one's body in a completely different way than the world does, you know, wildly differently. And whether you end up subscribing to the prescription of the Word of God or not, it does lay out very countercultural ideas about how to think about our bodies. So here's a few examples I thought of. The Christian includes their body in the category, everything belongs to God. We are only caretakers of what he's given us. Now the Christian says, this body belongs to God, therefore what I do in my body matters. It's God's. So therefore, much like a husband will check with his wife or a wife will check with her husband before getting a face tattoo, um, Christians need to check in with God and his word when they're considering doing something with their bodies that he's given to them. Now, it's important. It's not insignificant how we use our bodies because they are a trust from God and we are only stewards of the bodies that he's given us. You know, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's what the scripture would say. The second thing, second countercultural idea, not only that, but the Bible teaches some very important theology about Christian's body, namely that actually the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is not figurative, but literal, that when Jesus ascended, he sent his spirit, and at Pentecost, every believer receives the Holy Spirit into their temple, you know, the body. And this concept is actually taught in the Bible in relation to another discussion on human sexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. I think it's worth reading this entire passage. Think about this. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you, know not, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
These are countercultural ideas. We don't belong to ourselves. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So, so far, you know, we, we can kind of see the, the reasoning here. You know, for Christians, our faith is actually, when you think about it, all about the body. Embodiment of Jesus Christ himself, his presence on earth. And this is considered a core doctrine of our faith, not a side issue. In the New York Times, on April 5th, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, there was an article called, quote, I miss singing in church, unquote. I, I, I felt the same way, so I read the article. The subtitle said, the coronavirus crisis reminds us that we are bodies, not simply souls trapped in a mortal prison. In this article, the author, Tish Harrison Warren, writes about all the things she misses during the COVID-19 lockdown, including singing at church in person. The reason she ends up giving for the, for the universal longing in human beings is that we are, more than any, that more than any other group, we hold the human body as a central part of our faith. It's important. Listen to what she writes. She says, quote, For Christians, the most holy thing on earth, more than communion, the Sistine Chapel, the Holy Grail, or the Rocky Mountains, is the human body. This is, in part, why a vast majority of churches in America are setting aside our sacred vessels, bread and wine, and gathering together to protect vulnerable human bodies. The church itself is called, what else? The body of Christ. The story of creation in the Bible reminds us that we humans are bodies. We are not simply brains on a stick or souls trapped in a mortal prison. We believe bodies and souls are inseparably entwined, which is why Christians and other religious groups care so much about eating, drinking, and sex, not because we think the body is bad or dirty, but because we think it is mysteriously connected to our very soul. And we believe that God came not as a book or a codex of laws or as a hologram or a creed or an idea, but as a person in a body, Jesus. In assuming a body, God redeems embodiment itself. Therefore, we believe in the resurrection, not merely of the soul floating away to some ephemeral mist, but also of the body. Now, well said, well said. So, the answer to the question of why Christians talk about the body so much, and even sexuality, which is considered so private and personal, is that they believe their bodies belong to God. They believe that their bodies house the Holy Spirit, and they're part of Christ's body on earth. And they believe that their bodies and souls are completely, inseparably entwined. So that what happens to our body does affect our soul in incredible ways. Even to, even to the point of leading people to destruction. People that God created to grow and flourish. You know, what we do with our body can, dis can destroy us, right? So Christians feel strongly about this. These are, these are countercultural ideas. These are, that's why I think this passage says each person should, should learn to control their own body. This is something that we all have to choose to do. We have to choose what our trials will look like in this area. Because the culture has a completely different view of the body than we do. You know, at the risk of misrepresenting the culture's view, I think that we could say, the culture would say, my body belongs to me alone. And no one, no other person, certainly not some so-called God, can tell me what to do with my body. You know, the whole notion of anyone telling me what to do with my body is, 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 is just people trying to control me. And when God is brought into the picture, it's just meant to strong arm me into doing what people want me to do. Um, that's different from saying my body belongs to God, right? Culture says my body belongs to me. 
Secondly, I think our culture would say my body is alive for 70 to 85 years. It's meant to house as many good memories and experiences as possible. When I die, I simply disappear. I'm gone. There's no soul, certainly no temple of the Holy Spirit. And these ideas of soul and God are just, again, used to control people's behavior, perhaps. The short life we have is meant to be lived and enjoyed. And when we die, we just cease to exist. It doesn't really matter. I think the world would say that, uh, you know, while we are careful with not to get sick and to extend our life, that it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's not any real consequences to what we do with our bodies, uh, as long as we try to remain healthy. You know, this, it's a totally different worldview to believe that um, your body belongs to you alone and that God has no part of it. So here in a passage like today's, we, we have to just admit up front that Christianity, God, the Bible, they offer this wildly countercultural view to the mainstream. And so no matter what your belief is about these things, and we all have different beliefs about these things, and that's totally fine, um, the Bible teaches us to learn to control our own bodies in a way that pleases the Lord. Really cool thing about, about this is uh, that God does give us that, that he doesn't force us to do anything. He says, this is, I'm setting before you life and death. You can choose to, to, to go along with my will for flourishing, for wholeness, for fullness, or you can choose to go another way, but everyone must make the decision. Fundamentally, God is looking for people that believe that he exists, that he wants what's best for them, because he loves them, and then to live a life of trying to find out what pleases him. So with all this in mind, I wanted to go through 1 Thessalonians 4 and just talk about what this says about the trellis that we are supposed to live within in order to flourish and grow. It says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Now that word please means in the Greek to strive to please God. Because none of us is perfect. We're all moving forward. So, we instructed you how to live in order to strive to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord himself. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctification is, a, is a, the process by which we become like Jesus Christ through our lives. It's developmental. God doesn't expect anyone to be perfect, to start with perfection. He expects people to go with what they know and keep going, keep following him, keep trusting him. And throughout our life, we become sanctified. We become set apart by God. It says in the scriptures, as reminding my, my friend the other day, it says, by one sacrifice, Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, Jesus has made us perfect already. If we trust in Jesus, regardless of anything else, any other commitments we've made, we've been made holy by Jesus. Uh, we've been made perfect by Jesus, but we are being made holy as we walk through our lives. That's the sanctification process. A pastor I heard once said it's as if God gives you this test, um, and then he takes the test for you, and you pass the test. That's the day one. And then you spend the rest of, the life, the rest of your life learning the lessons that God teaches you to grow in Christ. You're made perfect forever, even as you're being made wholly sanctified. It's God's will that we should be sanctified, that we should develop and be consecrated for him. It says that you should avoid sexual immorality. To avoid 
means to hold back, to keep off, to prevent sexual immorality. That's where the trellis comes in. We're putting structures in our life to prevent sexual immorality, if you will. Sexuality, uh, he, sexual immorality, the word for that is porneia in the Greek. We can probably figure out some other words that come from that root. Um, it means illicit sexual intercourse, including adultery, fornication, homosexuality, intercourse with animals, I know, gross, intercourse with close relatives. Um, these are all things that describe this word porneia. And it says, each of us needs to learn to control our own body, our own vessel, our own temple, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like people who do not know God. We are to, um, we are to learn to control ourselves in order to, in order to keep ourselves from sinning against our own body and hurting ourselves. It literally means to possess your own vessel, to take real ownership of your vessel and say, I'm going to choose to do what pleases God with my body because I believe it's important. And then it says in verse 6, and in this matter, no one should, be, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And for all of the people who shared the horrendous stories of sexual abuse and trauma with me and that we've heard in our, in our, in our culture in this moment, you know, we ha- you have to know that this is not God's will. You know, God takes note of those things. And God will bring justice to the person that does violence to someone else and oversteps their boundaries. It's, I, lo- I just love that. No one should take wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister in this area overstepping someone's boundaries. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So stepping over someone else's boundaries, is this word, Greek word means to transgress, to go over the proper limits, to gain or take advantage of another person, to overreach. And the area that's talking about is this area of sexual immorality. You know, God is in the corner of those who are oppressed and abused. If any person, especially someone who calls themselves a Christian, oversteps the boundaries and sexually disrespects or assaults another person, the Bible says God himself will take note of that. God brings justice for all the oppressed. God takes transgression of someone else's territory very, very seriously especially when a couple is married. Um, when a man or a woman goes over the boundary and has sex with someone who is not their husband or wife, they're in a territory they do not belong. And God takes note of it. We are called to honor each other's bodies as vessels of God's Holy Spirit. We are called to elevate in every way how the human body is viewed and treated. And no one is telling anyone else what to do with their body. God is telling you his will for your body. And then he says, control your body. Make a trellis to protect this beautiful gift. It's substantial. It it means everything. This is the incarnation. This is, talk about Christmas and the advent of Jesus Christ. You know, this is uh, Jesus being, coming into us by his Holy Spirit and the life of Christ being lived through our bodies. That's why if Corinthians said, how can you take, this vessel that has Christ in it and unite it with a prostitute. It's an extreme example. But anything that's 
that deviates and hurts and, and transgresses, transgresses. It's very important we learn to control our own bodies. Again, the Lord says here, and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Live a holy life. So this, this, is, the, this is the part of the trellis that is very important. It's a big part of who we are. It's not the, of central importance, but it is very significant. Because in any other way that we deviate, we're sinning against another person or sinning external to our body. But when we sin sexually, we sin against ourselves and we hurt ourselves and we damage, um, we damage the image of God in us and in other people in this way. In the end of the day, there's no one who's responsible for our bodies but us. And so we all stand before God. I don't claim, I don't claim to know everything about this topic, but I think it's something that's worth noting and being, and being important in a public place like this, something we don't talk about all the time because it is um, substantial. It makes, it makes sense because God has put his Holy Spirit into each of us and God has a desire and plan for each of us. He says that he has an end for us, that he has a, a, a dream for us that we would grow into as we live our lives and are sanctified by Jesus. He has something, something good for us, some flourishing. And he gives us these limits, not to, not to hurt us or constrict us, but to love us. Because left to our own devices, we, we tend, to, tend to go in bad directions, especially in a topic that no one talks about, that, that is often kept in the shadows and in secrecy. So we need to be careful. But in all of this, we need to remember that, as I said in the beginning of the sermon, I'll say at the end, when someone feels that they can't come to God because they have been walking in a way contrary to what his will is for a long time, and it's become a part of them, they, they've sinned against themselves, they've made, made these sins a central part of their identity, the shame comes in, it's a lie. That, that is not something that can come between you and God. His arm is not too short to save. He is the prodigal, the prodigal father sitting on the porch, looking down the road for his prodigals to come home. That's what he's doing. His posture is not to punish and... You know, beat down and shame those who, who come to him. His posture is to run up to them, throw his arms around them, restore them, redeem them, turn their darkness into light. There's nothing beyond God's touch and his arm. So that's, that's the good news. I'm going to invite the worship team forward and just pray with me as we are about to sing the song of our wonderful, merciful Savior. Father God, I thank you so much um, for your gift of embodiment, that we are, we have the Holy Spirit in us, that we are your temple, that together in this place, other places like it, we form the body of Christ. I pray that you would show us, Lord, um, the limits we need to place around ourselves, that we would find the path that leads to life in this area of our sexuality, God, that we would use our energy for your glory, um, that we use the energy and love we have to build up the body, to respect the body, to respect your image and everyone that we meet, and that you would be at the center in all things, God. I pray that in all of this, we would continue to grow into the head of our body, who is Jesus Christ. Um, we truly want to know you and find out what pleases you. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.